Well, good morning again, everybody. I, I've decided I'm just going to... Good morning, everybody. Good morning. That's, thanks, Matt. I've decided I'm just going to defer the rest of my time to Levi. Where's Levi? Okay, so he can preach today. Um, welcome to Real Hope Community Church. My name is Michael Quaddy. I have the privilege of sharing with you this morning out of God's Word. It's an amazing thing to do. Uh, this is the last sermon of 2018 which is pretty cool. You, uh, just like Christmas Eve with the candles, you should have gotten party poppers as you walked in. So when we're, yeah. If you go to a church and they hand out party poppers, just leave. Just leave. That's just a, just a pro tip here. Uh, so this morning, uh, we have a lot, of, a lot of text to cover. This, uh, this message might actually go into 2019, so sorry. <laughs> And that's a good thing, right? Amen. We have, a lot, we have a lot of text to cover. We're going to continue our trek through the book of Exodus, so I'm going to jump right in. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one. As Craig said, they're in the back. Uh, and if you do have a Bible, please open up with me to Exodus chapter 6. It'll be a lot easier to see how I'm bouncing around and, and follow along. So a uh, super quick recap of where we've been in Exodus so far. Uh, the Israelites are still enslaved, and actually their slavery has just hit an all-time low. Uh, Pharaoh stopped giving them straw to make bricks, which Pastor Craig talked about last week, but they still had to make the same number of bricks each day or else face really brutal repercussions. So in short, things are not looking good for the Israelites. Now, however, God is at work, and he always is, so he gives Moses a message of comfort for the people, which is where we're going to start reading this morning. We're actually reading back a little bit what Pastor Craig covered on Christmas Eve, if you were here for that. Uh, so we're going to read, starting in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Amen, indeed. Here's what Scripture says, beginning in chapter 6, verse 6. This is God speaking here to Moses. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And for right now, we're going to skip the genealogy in the next couple verses. Uh, we'll get back to it, but we're going to skip to verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. I'm going to pray for us now, and um, I encourage you to do the same. Just ask God to use this text to speak something beautiful about himself to you, that you'd know him and love him more. So let's pray. Lord, I praise you and I thank you for this morning that we can gather in this place as your people. 
to worship you together. Lord, I thank you for everything we just sang about, that you are like you, there is no other. You are the everlasting God. Father, I pray that those truths would resound in our hearts, Lord, not just in this place, but that we would live like it. Father, I, I pray that you'd speak through this text, that nothing of Michael would be heard, Lord, but everything of you, Father, everything that you are. I pray that your truth may reign in us today and that your word would go out in power. All these things I pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So I know this is going to come as a shock to many of you, so brace yourselves. Life 102.5 overplayed a song. I'll let you pause for a moment and take that in. Do you guys know the song, uh, Thy Will? It's Hillary Scott. It's probably heard it before. Like I said, they overplayed it. Uh, I think it was a year or so, a year ago, year or so ago that I first heard it, uh, and I thought to myself, that's oh, a pretty good song. So you can imagine my delight when I heard it again and again and again, so on and so forth. And then fast forward to this past week, however, I was uh, prepping for this message and, and reading through our text that we just read, and the words popped into my head, you are God and I am not. Um, I, I knew somewhere, somehow, that it was a song lyric that I had heard, but I couldn't for the life of me remember where. But thankfully, we don't ever have to remember anything everymore, anymore. We can just turn to our good friend, Dr. Google, MD, PhD, DDS. Um, so a quick search told me, as it turns out, that the lyric came from, Thy Will, and it helpfully led me to the rest of the lyrics. So here are a couple lines from the song I just wanted to say here. I don't want to think, I may never understand that my broken heart is a part of your plan. When I try to pray, all I've got is hurt in these four words, thy will be done. Sometimes I've got to stop and remember that you are God and I am not, so thy will be done. You are God and I am not. I love, I love that line. It's super simple, but it carries so much weight. God is, as we just sang about, as we read that God is ultimate and we are not, God is entirely different from us. He tells us, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55. Um, the title of my message today is, it's written in the bulletin. By the way, make sure you look in the bulletin. Cindy works hard on that. Uh, my title is, is, God is God, and that's definitely true, but the other half of that is also important. God is God, and I am not. Can you say that with me? God is God, and I am not. Thank you. Moses is coming to grips with that fact right about now. So God had promised the Israelites he'd free them from slavery, but when Moses followed God's instructions and told Pharaoh to let his people go, it didn't go well. Instead of letting the Israelites go free, Pharaoh ended up imposing this ridiculous brick-making quota on them. So Moses doesn't really know what to think. But here's the thing. God told Moses ahead of time that Pharaoh wasn't going to listen to him. As the song said, my, my broken heart is a part of your plan. Now, unfortunately, Moses had never heard that song before. So he actually accuses God of working evil and not good. Yikes. Don't do that. So instead of turning Moses into a crater, however, God says this to him in verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Let's pause here for a quick moment. Um, on the screens and in my Bible, I hope in your Bible too, uh, the word Lord is written in all caps. And why is that? 
Uh, just a quick Hebrew lesson here. Generally, when you see the word Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that's the Hebrew word Adonai. Everyone say Adonai. Adonai, which literally means Lord or, or ruler. But when you see Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, that's representing the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is a proper name like Michael or Cornelius, that God has given himself so that people can refer to him. So for all intents and purposes to the Israelites, Yahweh is God's name. Uh, this is pretty cool. When God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush a few chapters ago, he called himself I am, or I am who I am. And that word for I am, Eche, has the same Hebrew root as Yahweh. So he says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, I am who I am. But what on earth does that mean? In Psalm 113, Craig read this from the call to worship. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? God cannot be accurately compared to anyone or anything. So who is like the Lord our God? He tells us, I am who I am. In Psalm 90, verse 2, it says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We just sang about that. Isaiah 40, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And Romans 11, O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God is God. There's no one like him. There's never, there never has been. There never will be. And there's a fancy theological word for this, and Pastor Russell touched on this a few weeks ago. And that word is transcendence. Everyone say transcendence transcendence. God transcends the things of this world to which we would compare him. So here is us, but here is God. Or another way, you are God and I am not. So in Exodus 6.6, 6, it says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am who I am. So what would you expect this transcendent, everlasting, incomparable, omnipotent, omniscient God to say next? What do I care about your problems, Moses? You're just dust. I'm God. Not the Lord. Not our God. He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He says, I will not abandon you. That's not the language of an unconcerned God. And I counted. It's surprising that I counted, I know. In those three short verses, God says eight times that he will do something for the people of Israel. Eight times. 
That is eight promises. Do you know how many things he tells his people that they will do? Just one thing. Go back to verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God on high, get this, he stoops down to his lowly creations and says, you will see all this good that I've done for you, and you will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are my people and that I am your God. Can I get an amen? Amen, thank you. Here is our other fancy theological word then for that very thing, and that's imminence. Everyone say imminence. Imminence. God is transcendent, so he's above all, but at the same time, he's imminent. He is actively engaged in every corner of his creation. Psalm 139 talks about this pretty much the entire way through. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. God searches us and knows us. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it completely. And then Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then a verse we probably know pretty well, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many things work together for good? All things, because all things belong to him. If this whole imminence thing is ringing a bell right now, that's because we just spent the entire Christmas season talking about it. Matthew 1 she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is the foremost example of God's imminence, the very person of Jesus Christ who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In Philippians 2, we know that. If you hear nothing else today, so hear this. God, who has always been and always will be infinite in power and holiness, worthy of all honor and glory, that same God is actively and intricately involved in every aspect of his creation. There's no corner that is out of his view. And we just read it in Romans 11. From him and through him and to him are all things. There it is again, all things. God is God, and we are not. He is transcendent. But he loves us and works all things for the good of those who love him. He is imminent. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So because God is God and everything that happens happens because he wants it to happen, how are we supposed to live? What do we do about that? Back in our text in, in verse 9, it says this, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses told the people everything that God said. Remember those eight I wills and the one you will. In theory, this should be very helpful to them. I, I can't tell you how many times that I personally have been comforted in the midst of affliction when I, when I read God's word and hear his promises. And I, I'm, I think that one of the big reasons that Christians face trials at all is that we can be comforted by God in his word especially. Our tough situations lead us to him. But the people don't listen. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In other words, they've got a new pair of earplugs. Broken spirit, 
Harsh slavery. That's why they can't listen. The very things that should have led them to God end up preventing them from being comforted. That's sin. That's what sin does to us. Just a side question for you. Do you have earplugs in today? Is there something that should be leading you to God that's actually preventing you from being comforted? Think about that. So does the fact that the Israelites didn't listen, does that derail God's plan? Does he go, oh man, no exodus today. Watch what happens here. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. God's plans don't change. He's still going to redeem Israel, whether they're on board or not, full speed ahead, because his plans don't depend on anyone else but him. More on that in a second here. So the next verse, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? Now thankfully, Moses is here to correct God's obvious neglect of the facts. What is he thinking? So he helpfully gives God two reasons why Pharaoh won't listen to him. Reason number one, the Israelites didn't listen to him, so why on earth would Pharaoh listen to him? I'd say that this is pretty sound reasoning, normally, if he was talking to anyone other than the Lord of the universe, right? We already said that Pharaoh's heart has been in God's hands the entire time. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, even Pharaoh's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. No one, not even Pharaoh, is exempt from God's sovereignty. If Pharaoh is going to listen to Moses' command, it will be because God wills it to be so. And if Pharaoh is not going to listen to Moses' command, it will be because God wills it to be so. So that's reason number one. Strike down. Reason number two. Moses says that Pharaoh won't listen to him. He says, I am of uncircumcised lips. What in the world does that mean, Moses? So first things first, let's get this out of the way. Circumcised, 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 circumcised. Now we can say it comfortably, right? Okay, good. Kate told me not to do that, but I thought that would be funny. Okay, thank you. She was probably right. So what could Moses possibly mean when he said uh, uncircumcised lips? What, is, what does circumcision signify? It's, it's a covenant sign, right? That Abraham's descendants, who would be the nation of Israel would be God's special people, and that the outward identifying sign of that would be circumcision. So in, in much too simple terms, but it, will, it might help to think about it this way, God split the world into two groups like that. He said, God's people and not God's people, or circumcised, uncircumcised. So I say that with an important caveat. In the Old Covenant, circumcision in and of itself didn't necessarily make someone a part of God's people and thus earn them some special status. That's important. The first reason for that, I mean, first off, only, only males can be circumcised, and I hope I don't have to explain why. I don't, right? Okay. <laughs> so only males can be circumcised, and we know that the people of God includes both males and females. So really, it's a sign for a group of people that this particular group who circumcises its males, they belong to God. They are God's special people. But it's even more important that Israel, God's special people, actually lives like they are God's special people. So that's what circumcision means, but what does it 
What does it mean to have uncircumcised lips, Moses? I think that there are two parts. So number one, remember, Moses is about 80 years old at this point. So even though he was born an Israelite, his parents were Israelites, he was raised as an Egyptian. Remember the basket out of the water thing? He was raised as an Egyptian and lived among them for the first 40 years of his life. And then he spent the next 40 years living in Midian with a whole bunch of Midianites. He's just about the least Hebrew Hebrew that you could ever be. Moses had never really lived like an Israelite, and he probably had some trouble speaking and acting like one. So if the Israelites are God's circumcised people, then it's pretty safe to say that Moses has what you might call uncircumcised lips. Does that make sense? Good. That's the first thing I think he means. The second one is this, and this is probably more likely. Moses is not the most eloquent speaker. So back in chapter 4, while God is speaking out of the burning bush, Moses made sure to point that out in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. If Moses had said this to me, I'd probably be inclined to give him some sort of pep talk or something like, no way, Moses. You're super easy to talk to. I bet you're great with people. To which you respond, uh, no, I'm not. Last time I tried to start, strike up a conversation with a group of people, I ended up killing one of them and fleeing the country. Not what I'd call a people person, I'd say. That was funnier in my head. His words, his lips, they're not up to this high calling. He has uncircumcised lips. But look at what God said to Moses right after this verse here. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Back to just the comfort we get from God's word. I can't tell you how many times that I personally have been comforted by this verse. I think that I myself am not at home speaking in front of people in this way. I'm awkward. I'm gangly. As you can tell, I make really bad jokes. I think if I tried to grow gills and live at the bottom of the ocean, I would be more at home than up at here. But God's word is sufficient. Amen? Amen. Who has made man's mouth? God did. Now, back to Moses. God doesn't deny Moses' insufficiencies. He says that he will work through them. Israel's freedom isn't going to depend on Moses because God is God and his plans don't depend on anyone else but him. And that's a really, really good thing. Our inability paves the way for God's ability to be seen clearly. In our emptiness, I want you to hear this, in our emptiness... He displays his fullness. As John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. We just need to get out of the way. God is God, and we're not. But then it goes even further than that. At the end of today's text, right over as it crossed into chapter 7, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Pharaoh's a pretty big, bad hombre, I think we can say. He's easily one of the most powerful men in the world at this point. And we've already seen he's not the nicest guy. So Moses has every reason, really, to be afraid of going to Pharaoh. But look how God sets Pharaoh in his place. 
Moses isn't coming before him as some 80-year-old Israelite misfit. He's coming with the authority of the Lord, bearing his very words. What God says to Moses, Moses will say to Aaron, and Aaron will say to Pharaoh. God is God, and so he uses people like Moses, people like Aaron, people like us for the glory of his name. And his hand was at work in every aspect of the Exodus. He himself laid every brick on the road to the Israelites' freedom. So from Pharaoh's heart to Moses' lips, God was at work in all things for the good of Israel. Because God is God and we are not, but he loves us and works all things for the good of those who love him. And his work depends on him and him alone. And it's at this point that we come to maybe the scariest part for me, the genealogy in our text. So what is a genealogy? It's essentially like a family tree, right? It's a pretty fancy name for a family tree. Uh, Now before we get into this family tree, uh, here's a brief heads up. There'll be a fair amount of Hebrew names in this section, and let's be honest, it's it's all names. So I'm going to try my level best to pronounce the names correctly. But please, this is important, try not to tune out during this part. Try to understand what the author is telling us. As we said earlier, we don't want to shy away from God's word. We want to do what? Embrace it, exactly. So let's put our money where our mouth is. So let's read. Chapter 6, verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuven, Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Hanoch, Palu, Hetzron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Shimon, or Simeon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ochad, Yakin, Tzokar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kahath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Livni, and Shimi by their clans. The sons of Kahath, Amram, Yitzar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kahath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Machli, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Yocheved, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Yitzar, Korach, Nepheg, and Zichri. The sons of Oziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadav, Avihu, Elatsar, and Yithamar. The sons of Korach, Asir, Elkanah, and Aviasaf. These are the clans of the Korahites. Elazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Pinchas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. Whew. Ah. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. That very ending here, that's the reason that this genealogy is included here. Because we want to know exactly which Moses and which Aaron they're talking about who led, the, is, who led Israel out of Egypt. And they're Moses and Aaron, Kohathites from the clan of Amram. More on that in a second here. Um, this genealogy, I'd say, even though it doesn't seem like it, 
it's relatively straightforward. It's, it's pretty easy, especially as Old Testament genealogies go. But it seems pretty complicated to us because all the names are in Hebrew, and let's face it, there is no one in here named Yocheved, I'm guessing. So to hopefully aid in our understanding here, um, we've drawn a color-coded chart here. And everything's less scary when it's written in purple, I think. So this kind of just going to help us figure out what, what we're talking about here. We could spend a really, really long time dissecting this list of names. I'm going to briefly, as briefly as possible, zoom through it just so we can get the lay of the land, so to speak, and point out just a few really important things here. So this family tree, it's all about Levi and his descendants right here. So we see Jacob and Leah, they had, I believe, six of the 12 sons of Israel, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and in our text, we know that Reuben and Simeon, they're included first, and we have all their sons. Not to say that doesn't really matter, but in this genealogy, in this family tree, that's not necessarily the most important thing. They're just included to show that Levi was the third son from that. Make sense? You with me? So Levi was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, or one of the 12 sons of Israel. His descendants would be one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, now the Levites are unique among the 12 tribes because after the Exodus, God gave them the task of overseeing worship. They set up and guarded the tabernacle. They maintained like the holy items in the tabernacle, like the, the golden table, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, stuff like that. I bring that part up because that's the first thing I want us to see in this section. God cares a great deal about his worship. And he's put people in place for that purpose. This also shows us that God isn't just working for the Israelites' freedom. He's working for his glory. Once the Israelites cross the Egyptian border, God isn't just going to say, okay, cool, you're on your own from here. He wants them to worship him. He will be their God, and they will be his people. Remember those eight I wills that we talked about? What was that one you will? You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's worship, knowing who God is and what he has done and actually treating him like he has done that and worshiping him. Okay, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty here. So verse 16, we can see uh, that there are three sons of Levi, Gershon, Kahath, and Merari. We're going to talk about Jacob in a second here. Um, so these, that means... The descendants of these three sons, it means that every Levite is either a Gershonite, a Kohathite, or a Merorite. Merorite. Yeah, Merorite. One of those. So that means that they can fall into three categories here. So, uh, and then after that, in the next verse, we can see that all the sons of these three, uh, these three of Levi's sons, all his grandsons, they'll be the heads of the Levite clan. So we have Livni, Shimei, Amram, Hebron, Aziel, Yitzar, Machli, and Mushi. If you're looking for any baby names, <laughs> just take a picture of this. Feel free to any point. And then it tells us at the end of verse 19 that these are the clans of the Levites. So that's every Levite then after them falls into that clan. You with me so far still? Doing okay? Give me a thumbs up. Good. Okay. So the cool part about this genealogy is that it's corroborated in other biblical books, like Genesis, Numbers, First Chronicles. And that helps us to see this account from multiple angles. For example, if we go to Genesis 46, when Joseph first brought the Israelites to Egypt, there's a list of names of everyone who made the journey. And Levi and his three sons are actually listed among that. 
So that's pretty cool. So keep that in your minds for just a second here. We'll go to verse 20 then. Amram took as his wife Yocheved, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. You guys want to see something really cool? Maybe? Okay. So hang with me for a second. We're going to cover a lot of ground here. This may sound strange, but I don't actually think that Moses and Aaron are Amram's children. I, I, not like a Jerry Springer way. I, I don't think they're... <laughs> I don't think that they're sons. I think that they're direct ancestors of it. And here's why I think that. I have a few reasons. Reason number one. We know that Israel sojourned in Egypt for 430 years. That was the total amount of time between when Jacob and his sons came to Egypt and when Moses led them out of Egypt. 430 years. Our text today tells us that Kahath, Levi's son, this one, he was alive when they got to Egypt. But he lived 137, I'm sorry, 133 years. And then we also know that his son Amram lived for 137 years. Now, even if Kohath was a newborn when they got to Egypt, and even if he had Amram at the very end of his life, and even if he and Yochebed had Moses at the very end of his life, it still doesn't add up to 430 years. There'd still be a gap of 80 years right around that time. Uh, there's probably a generation or two between these. That's more of a math problem, I know, than a reason, but uh, this next one, it kind of falls into that category. Reason number two, in Numbers chapter three, that's one of the other parallel genealogies, immediately after Israel comes out of Egypt, there were 8,600 Kohathite men and boys. So 8,600 men and boys descended from Kahath. So let's assume that each of the four Kohathite clans, so Amram, Hebron, Aziel, and Yitzar, that they had evenly divided men and boys, that would be a total of 1,250, sorry, 2,150 men and boys between the, two, or between the four clans. So that means that if Amram was Moses' father, that Moses would have 2,148 brothers, sons, nephews, male relatives. And where are you going to book a family reunion of that size? <laughs> Nightmare, I think. But once again, there are probably a couple generations in between there somewhere. And reason number three, you guys are doing great. Exodus 2, which is where Moses is born, like that's where we see the account of that, it leaves out the name of Moses' parents, but if they were Amram and Yecheved, as it might seem in this verse here, why not just say that from the get-go? I think there's a good chance, this is just conjecture here, it's a really good chance that Moses didn't know the identity of his parents because he was raised as an Egyptian. You made it through, congratulations. So if Amram and Yocheved aren't Moses and Aaron's parents, did I just point out a big problem in the text? Of course not. Because this isn't Moses' story. It's God's story. And all that the author of this genealogy, which according to tradition is Moses, all that he's trying to say here is that Moses and Aaron were Kohathites from the clan of Amram. That's how they got there. They just wanted to prove that they were Levites, that they were Kohathites, that they were Amramites, that they were true Israelites. And the Hebrew word for bore that we can see in this verse, that can also mean was the ancestor of, something like that. So trust me, there's nothing to get hung up about. And then you'll say, Michael, you just spent five minutes talking about it. I think you're hung up. And I'll be like, yeah, probably. The reason I say that is because all these names on this chart are stories of God's faithfulness. Just like everyone in this room is a story of how God interacts with people. And that's a beautiful thing. We can dive into each one of these names. 
One quick other point out I want to, want to make here. So you can see the descendants of Aaron were given uh, the job of being priests. So when it says in our text, uh, all of Aaron's descendants, his children and grandchildren, that's because those are priests in particular. Like we said before, God carries a great deal about his worship, and he has put people in place for that. One more thing with the genealogy, I promise. So I included Judah here on this, uh, and the reason I did that was because Aaron's wife uh, was from the tribe of Judah, daughter of Aminadav, and sister of Nashon, we see. The reason I point that out is because Nashon is one of the great, 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 great grandfathers of King David, who is a great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Everything here points to Jesus. This is God's nation that he has raised up because he was going to bring his Messiah into the world. And it's really cool that our genealogy from from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, shows that and demonstrates it. So why, why did we tell you all that? Why did we go through that? Because God is God, and we are not. He is the God who turns slaves into priests and who arranges kings and nations according to his purposes. I've heard it said that the Exodus was the pinnacle of redemptive history in the Old Testament. And because the God who called the Israelites out of Egypt is the same God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will never die but have eternal life, we know that the Exodus points to an even greater redemption, eternal salvation from sin in Jesus We started out uh, in chapter 6, verse 6, we started out by reading God's I will statements, where it said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. As we read those beautiful words, let's just praise God for the promises that he's given us in Jesus, which would look something like this. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of your sins, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with the outstretched arms of my own son and with great acts of judgment poured out on him. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of your sins. I will give it to you. I will give my rest to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God did something impossible in redeeming the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He overcame Pharaoh's hard heart and Moses' unworthy lips, but he also does something impossible in everyone who comes to faith in his son, Jesus. We are fully unable to free ourselves from slavery to sin, and we certainly don't deserve it. It's an impossible thing. But our inability paves the way for God's ability to be seen clearly. In our emptiness, as we said before, in our emptiness, he displays his fullness. Our scripture reading this morning was from 1 Timothy 1, and I'm going to read it again now and just marvel at what God has done in the lives of, of Paul, and this being true for every believer as well. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. God is God and we are not. He is Yahweh, the transcendent, everlasting, incomparable Lord of the universe. But he is also the imminent God who loves blaspheming, insolent sinners and pours out his grace and mercy on us until they overflow so that we can put his perfect love and patience on display all for his glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we confess now in our hearts that your word is truth. We confess that we can do nothing to save us, Lord. We can do nothing to save ourselves. But Father, you have done everything. Lord, though we are unworthy of being saved, though we could not save ourselves, you came to us. You gave your one and only son, Jesus Christ, as the ransom for our sin. Father, I pray that we'd be a people who live like that. That we shall know that you are the Lord, our God, who has brought us out from slavery to our sins, Lord. I pray that we live like people who worship you for that. Father, we thank you so much for the chance to praise you together in this day. And I pray that as we leave this place, that we would still live like that, that in all things we do, we would look for the glory of Jesus Christ, who has saved us by his blood. Father, we thank you that we have life in your name. And it is in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.